The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. Hi there, it's James McNicholas here, jumping into your podcast schedule, ready to cause chaos and ruffle your listening habits' feathers. But I promise you it's worth it. The Athletic have a new podcast out, and it's called In the Boardroom, and it's hosted by Jackie Oatley, off the telly. In fact, I'm not just going to tell you about it, I'm going to let you hear it. In this episode, Jackie is speaking with Claire Wheatley, Arsenal's head of women's football, and they're talking all about what it's like to go from playing for your club, as Claire did, to becoming part of the boardroom. And there's loads more too, so if after listening to this episode you want more, all you have to do is head to In the Boardroom, wherever you get your pods. So let's hand the mic over to Jackie. Lion Trust are the proud partner of The Athletic's In the Boardroom podcast. Lion Trust have been an independent asset manager since 1995. And right now, they're giving you a chance to win a £1,000 shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. All you need to do is visit liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic to find out more. Head towards your financial goals with Lion Trust. Now, this competition is only open to UK residents and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. I'm Jackie Oatley and welcome to the first episode of In the Boardroom, a brand new podcast series from The Athletic. I'll be speaking to influential people who operate at senior levels in football about their experiences of working in the game. It may be the head of a supporters trust taking over a club in crisis or a director changing the way their club addresses inequality. In the Boardroom will bring an in-depth and nuanced insight from behind the scenes. In this first episode, we're speaking to Claire Wheatley, the general manager of Arsenal Women. Claire joined Arsenal as a player back in 1995, the start of a 26-year association. Her work off the pitch began in 1997, at a time when she and her fellow players all needed other jobs to earn a living. Arsenal are the most successful club in English women's football history, having won 15 league titles, 14 FA Cups, and they remain the only British club to have been European champions. That was during their quadruple season of 2007. My conversation with Claire covered many, many aspects from what life was like as a player in the 90s to the transformation and professionalisation of the women's game since then and how she's trying to steer Arsenal through those changes. She also shares her concerns about the key issue of sustainability, when and how women's clubs can afford to operate independently, as well as her hopes and plans for the future of the game. I started off by asking her how she got into football and how she ended up at Arsenal. I still don't know who, if I had one, an external influence would have been because it's kind of been within me, to be honest. I was very lucky in that in 1979, I was able to play uh, football in my school playground with the boys. And I had a very forward-thinking teacher at the time, junior school teacher, Mr. Reed, And he opened the door to taking me with the junior school team to play for the school with the boys. But at the time, he said, we're going to have to ask permission, I guess, for the opposition teacher to see if it was okay for me to play. Well, unfortunately, that's when I hit the discrimination. And that's where they said, no, I'm afraid not. But it just didn't discourage me. It probably spurred me on even more. 
And then I went to an all-girls grammar school where football was not the done thing and therefore gave up playing at school. I went to university and re-established my passion for the game when I joined Sheffield Wednesday, when I found out that Sheffield Wednesday had a team when I was at uni in Sheffield. Graduated in 93, came back, and the irony was I joined Chelsea because they were the closest team. It was easy to do. I just started a career in teaching, PE teaching. And then a friend of my husband at the time wanted to trial at Arsenal. So I went along with her. And um, I actually got in and she didn't. And then I realised that this is the real deal. And that was 26 years ago. Can you just paint a picture for people who don't know what it was like at Arsenal, who were clearly to become one of the leading lights, but generally speaking, what it was like for women playing football back then and what sort of other jobs did players have and how often did you train and what were the facilities like both at Arsenal and elsewhere? Yeah, and bearing in mind, of course, Arsenal were one of the leading teams, yet our training facility was relatively fantastic. Relatively, I use that word, because we had the JVC Centre, which many people will know about if they're Arsenal fans or they've trained at Arsenal when we were at Highbury. And that was pretty much a carpet on top of a concrete base. And we trained there twice a week, eight till ten. But an hour of that was fitness, and we trained around the pitch at Highbury or in the East Upper Stand. There was like a red rubber not crumb, but it was fixed. It was fine for running on because it didn't add to injuries or anything, but it certainly wasn't It wasn't conducive to a professional game. So yes, we would do training around on that facility so that you, you're getting the high-speed runs, but also up in the East Upper, so using the stairs to train on. Because I think if you'd have trained on the concrete facility in the JVC centre at the time. And also there were other bookings that we had to contend with, remember. We, it was so amateur back then. What we tried to have was a professional outlook. I think that's probably the best way to summarise it. And again, for us to be training, albeit not allowed to touch the pitch, but around the pitch and in the stadium, kind of had a little bit of kudos about it in a strange way because other clubs hadn't yet affiliated strong teams with their men's teams either. So players had numerous jobs. There were a few different teachers, people that were working within Arsenal as well in the community department. And of course, initially that the club was born out of the community department. And then, yeah, it was a case of just trying to sustain decent facilities or decent kits even that would drown you because it would go down to your knees. Just everything was so different. There were no boot deals. There were no agents in the game. I mean, that's been obviously a a revelation in the last five years, good or bad, but it's certainly ever present now. I would get home at about midnight, ready to teach the next day, um, exhausted. So yeah, we've, we've obviously come a very, very long way. Yeah. And also you were sort of pioneers in a way of the way that you got players at the time who of course it was nowhere near professional but you did semi-employ players didn't you or you did employ players to do other jobs which I mean the headline grabbing line would be about how players such as Casey Stoney have talked about washing the men's kit and you know Dennis Bergkamp Smalls and that kind of thing which people now think did they really but actually that was very much seen as a positive wasn't it because it was a case of giving the players a means of of generating some income whilst being able to focus on training, whether it's a couple yeah. of times a week or, or whatever. No, I agree. It was, a case, it was a situation where it allowed those players to prioritise their playing. That then allowed them to develop their own game. And obviously the work on the side was, yeah, just to 
try and get some pennies to them. There were no um, semi-pro status at the time. I do remember going into the boardroom at Arsenal and proposing, well, presenting actually, a proposal for us to turn semi-pro. And that was for us to earn £100 a game for every win that we had. So if you had about 25 games through the year, you're you're earning about £2,500. And and that back then was was amazing because you're actually earning money through playing, you know, your your passion. And it wasn't, I, I have to make this quite clear, that again, that wasn't why people played at all to get to, you know, to get the even that two and a half thousand pounds. You didn't think of it on the pitch the same way as professionals don't think of it now, but of course it's their living now. So it's a different outlook. People did ridicule it. But then it allowed those players to focus on their playing, which having another full-time job certainly wouldn't have allowed. Well, you've clearly played a major role in bringing Arsenal ladies, as it was then, now Arsenal women, uh, to the forefront of the women's game. We're actually keeping them there, but developing them off the pitch and um, giving them the facilities that they have. But what was your personal transition like from playing to becoming involved behind the scenes and helping to grow the club within the wider club? It was it was really challenging when I was combining roles because my head could never be on the game. I was always thinking, <laughs> have we got enough money to pay the refs? Are the balls pumped up? Have we got the equipment? Have we let the opposition know for the following weekend where they're playing, what the time of kickoff is? It was just mind-blowing, actually, to think back now. And so then coming out of the playing role, I was fortunate in the sense that I retired from playing Arsenal through choice rather than being injured, although it was because of previous ACL injuries that I thought if I'm going to walk when I'm 40, probably best to wind it down. I was 34. And then, of course, the game starting to grow. That was 2005-06. We'd established a strong centre of excellence at that point. We had gone semi-pro because the money, we were starting to pay more than the £100 a game. We were giving players jobs on the sidelines of their football career. And eventually then we were able to move to the training ground. So, of course, none of that would have been possible without the main football club. It's impossible to run, I guess, any club that has a strong affiliation with their men's club. It would be impossible to run without that support, obviously. But I guess you're responsible for helping set strategy, set values and trying to create the right atmosphere and environment whilst putting pleads forwards for budgets, appropriate budgets to grow with the game and so on. So it was a welcomed change, actually, to not have the worry of playing on the pitch whilst having that in my mind. You have to work hard when you're in the women's game or in any sport at any level, right? There's no clocking on and clocking off. It's 24-7. That's how it is. So I was fortunate to get people around me pretty quickly to assist in that process. Can you give us an idea as to what your everyday involves? I know it involves a lot of meetings by the sounds of it, whether in person or online. You, You sound incredibly busy. But just give people an idea as to how it works running a club such as Arsenal Women, one of the top clubs in the land and who you deal with and what sort of subject matters you deal with on a day-to-day basis and I guess you deal with the FA as well and talk to other clubs about different issues and recruit yeah. a lot <laughs> no we, we, we do we believe that we've got a really good relationship with the FA and UEFA and the ECA and other clubs actually it's, it's something that's important to us no two days are the same I've never looked at my watch in terms of oh isn't the day dragging in 26 years 
The only time I've ever looked at my watch is to say, oh, my word, I cannot believe that we're at that point already in the day. So it's an incredibly fortunate position to be in. And it's so varied. I couldn't even give you a typical day, but to cover off, I guess, what it is that I would be involved in on a day-to-day basis would be around recruitment of players, recruitment of staff, trying to align strategy, picking up so many different areas of proposals, say, from the FA, the youth pathway, making sure that, you know, we can try and I guess recently has been stay up with or moving forward, stay ahead of our rivals, whether that's addressing facilities, whether that's looking at expanding provision of staff, medical provision, whether we fit with the wider club, trying to bridge different departments. So, you know, we've got an analytical department, a technical department, a medical department, an operations department, a youth programme. So it's all of those areas really trying, and it's really hard because the game's growing so quickly, trying to strategize and safeguard the club for the future. And as I said, that that is something that's an ongoing challenge because you just don't know where the game's going. It's everything on a day-to-day basis. It could be one moment you're speaking to an agent in Japan. Obviously, we recruited Manu Bridge, so you're speaking to an agent in Japan whilst you're speaking to an agent last year in America. So you're looking at the two time zones, you know, one very early and one very late, whilst trying to manage with our amazing academy manager, what would be the best age groups that we're looking to run next season that would benefit the long-term strategy of the club? It is so diverse. It is so different. That's why um, no two days are ever the same. And what was your relationship like with the people at Arsenal Football Club. So, for example, David Dean was a huge supporter of the women's game, wasn't he? Arsene Wenger when he was there. And now you work with Vinay at Arsenal. How difficult is it banging the drum for the women's side? Because, of course, you need as much funding as possible. Do you have to keep knocking on the door and say, well, look, Chelsea is spending this. Chelsea have got this facility. Man City are doing that. We need that. How does it work? Yeah, um, Mr Dean was such a pioneer for the women's sport and 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 still now actually is involved and you know keeps an eye out for obviously how Arsenal women are doing and Arsene Wenger was very supportive as well and it was actually the presentation when I made to turn semi-pro it was Arsene Wenger and David Dean who opened the door for me to go into that boardroom and make that presentation they literally opened opened that opportunity up for me to do that you know our Arsenal has got a reputation, a tradition, a history, and there's certain ways of doing things. And we were just conscious to make sure that we lived that out, whilst knowing that we were, again, relatively speaking, very lucky to have what we had at the time. Then, of course, you get towards the mid-2010s and you've got some key rivals, competitors, growing their provision and their programme, which helped spur spur you on, of course. Yes, we were looking to grow budgets, but then there is, a, I guess, a perception that is incorrect that there was more money in the game than what there actually was. So it's always the perception was wrong that there was more money in the game? As in it's people didn't appreciate the fact that you have to really try and have a business model so that if you're going to increase your costs, naturally you want to make sure that the revenues are close behind. 
or at least higher than the costs. But of course, in the women's game, that's not the case back then. And there wasn't the broadcast eyes on the game to justify the initial spend. So Arsenal did it because it was the right thing to do. And they they firmly believed in their hearts it was the right thing to do for the women's game. It could have potentially always have stayed at that level had other major rivals not done what they'd done. Because if you were winning everything, and we were, and that doesn't mean to sound arrogant, that's a fact, we were. It was not easy, but we were winning year on year, the um, equivalent of the Super League, WSL back then, and regular FA Cups. Why would you think you need to increase the spend? Because there was no Champions League, although we had the UEFA Cup, which was the equivalent, which we won in 2007. So, you know, if, if the rivals, our competitors hadn't done what they'd done, I don't know whether we'd have gone where we've gone, but then there wouldn't have been a professional league either because obviously you can't have professional players, professional teams on the budgets that we were operating on. And now, of course, it's taken off. Vinay is our CEO and is really supportive, as is the board, as is the exec team, and as is my new boss. So I've got a new boss in, in Rich Garlic. Some people will know of Rich through his time at the Premier League. Yeah, it's changed beyond all recognition, I'd say, in the last 10 years, five years, even potentially the last 18 months in terms of the support that's being given now to Arsenal women. Could you just clarify exactly what did David Dean do? We've heard so much about how supportive he was and Arsene Wenger as well. What does that mean in practice? He listened and he was forward thinking and he always had a rationale as to why the women's club should exist. Again, it wasn't about money. Obviously, it wasn't about money. It was about giving opportunities to uh, females of a certain level in terms of uh, as a player to be able to live their dreams. And then, of course, it's shifted slightly as the years have gone past towards becoming a, a much more of a, a business situation rather than let's you know allocate that money, that's a spend only. Obviously, there's nothing in return. So Mr. Dean was very forward thinking in that respect from 1987 when we were established. And of course, that was alongside Vic Akers and Alan Sefton and the the guys there that were forward thinking to establish a women's club here. And obviously, if we didn't have that history, I'm not sure we'd be the club we'd be now because at times your tradition and history can give you a competitive advantage. But that's not to say it's taken for granted that that can win you contracts with players at all. But people know that Arsenal women are on the map and they've been on the map for a while now. And it's really important that we keep that momentum going. You won the title 11 times in 12 years. How do you think you were perceived from the outside? Did, did everybody think it was just easy? And was that completely different being on the inside? Or did it feel a little straightforward? Because I do recall you winning fairly easily most weeks. And even when you won the quadruple in 2007, you won every single league game that season. Do you think maybe you didn't get enough credit for that? I think the best way to describe it is if we won something, people would roll their eyes <laughs> and say, oh, they've won it again. And I kind of understand that because that's society, that's culture in this country, isn't it? We, we love an underdog. We love an underdog to come through. And I understand that, but Arsenal were pioneers for the women's game. And so they kind of got the rewards from their actions, if you like, in giving opportunities at that point. And I think we grew slowly. There are some clubs now that are looking to hit the heights with a much shorter history. So both Chelsea and Man City, they've got much shorter histories than us. And obviously they've heavily invested 
whilst we've played, I guess, the longer game with establishing, yes, we've got a very successful past and where we really do want a very successful future. And we're very aware that that will take a lot of money, a lot of spend, but a lot of recruitment of the right people because that's also your competitive advantage. Um, recruiting the right personnel to run the football club is critical. Obviously, it's critical in all walks of life, but I get the rolling of the eyes. I, get, I, I kind of understand that. But it was because Arsenal were investing, so they got their rewards. In the Ballroom is partnered by Lion Trust, an independent asset manager that invests in a positive future. Lion Trust's sustainable investment team seeks companies that help create a cleaner, safer, and healthier society, empowering and inspiring the wider community, and seeks to generate attractive returns for investors. Right now, Lion Trust wants to give you a chance to win a thousand pound shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. Just head to liontrust.co.uk forward slash the athletic. Answer the question and you could win. Now this competition is only open to UK residents and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. Find out more at liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic. Arsenal prove they are more than worthy champions. Full time. At Meadow Park, it has finished. Arsenal 1, Manchester City 0. Seven years of hard work have led to this moment. A successful taste sweet and long may Arsenal celebrate. So it's been, I guess, fairly welcome for you uh, to a certain extent that other clubs have started to invest, that Chelsea then really put a lot of money in. Matt Beard did a great job uh, at Chelsea. And of course, we know what Emma Hayes has done since and in eliciting more funding from the club. And Bruce Buck has been a big figure for them. And Manchester City, we've seen what they've done from pretty much a standing start, relatively speaking, as well. How much do you welcome that and, and use that as a maybe a lever to be able to say to your bosses, look, come on, we need to keep doing this, but also realise that it's good for the game that you have other teams also competing at a high level rather than just having Arsenal lead the way as you did so much under Vic Akers? Yeah, I think it's really important. I think it's really important for the domestic stage as well as the European stage, as well as the global stage. And the investment is, I have to say, I think there is an expectation there in the public for, for things to move very quickly. But in some areas, the sport is running before it can walk and we have to grow organically with the right level of investment so that we get it right. And I think that's really, really important that we do build... Um, firm foundations within the game rather than rush ahead and then regret some actions. And I, I, I think the budgets now that are being spoken of on the continent and actually in, in England, some of them are very healthy budgets. And it's, it's fantastic that players now are able to get a good living out of it. But what we've always got to do is look on the flip side of where are the revenues. And of course, there is an argument to invest to make those revenues happen in the mid-distance, I guess, in the mid-future. So that's an approach that we've taken. We, we know the value in the game, but the game is, is, is growing at such a rate, it's impossible to predict the next turn and where the figures are going. Now, whether we look to 
invest significantly beyond where we are, who knows? We have no idea what next season will hold. There are some plans behind the scenes for some exciting projects down the line, which I can't say more than that. But I guess there are some expectations from people that some could be deemed unrealistic. And obviously now there's agents in the game. Are you game. players or agents? I think the whole football family, I think the whole women's football family, actually, from top to bottom. And we just need to be, we need to be careful that we do really make sure that we're getting a really solid foundation in terms of what, what you do. So as an example, we're looking to make sure that we have a performance centre fit for Arsenal women. And that's happening after a healthy collaboration process and looking at what is right for now, but also what's looking right for the future. So, you know, we wanted to make sure that we're providing we're providing the right resources for where the game's at, but at the same time, you want to future-proof, and that's the tricky part. Gavin Makel, the Managing Director of Manchester City Women, did a really good piece with The Athletic, actually, with Katie Wyatt, which is worth looking up, about sustainability, which is the key word, isn't it, in women's football. Over the years, we've always talked about women's football becoming self-sustaining. And he talked about it being absolutely a commercial operation rather than it being the right thing to do, which is, of course, how it used to be, as you were saying, at Arsenal Women. How close are we to that, do you think, to a top women's football club paying for itself, even if it is part of a, a huge club such as Manchester City Men or Arsenal or Chelsea or others? Well, every time I think we might be getting a little closer, the costs go up again. So it's very hard to say. Do you mean wages of players? Are demands getting too high? Yeah, yeah, certainly player wages. The competition is there. I don't mean just in England, but obviously on the continent. It's a global market. It's a very competitive market with clubs abroad and in England. And it's something that we have to be mindful of because the sustainability is not there right now. It's something that we need to look at at some point as to how we can improve the revenues or get some sort of reasonable situation with the salaries so that they don't continue to price many clubs out of the market. And you're going to, you, you know, you're going to see some clubs really struggle to stay with this. How we do that, I don't know, whether it's more of a carrot than a stick so that you don't prevent players receiving good salaries, but that you're able to perhaps support clubs that aren't in a position to fund because obviously the top level is going up, but that will obviously drag up the base level as well. So an average player is clearly far better paid now than was only a year ago, even six months ago. And we just need to be careful around this. I don't know what the actual answer is, but the sustainability piece is massive, is absolutely massive, particularly when you've got so many Premier League clubs working with their women's clubs. Because if the Premier League club pulled out, then of course, often the first thing to go is the women's club, um, or it just wouldn't be in existence if something happened to the Premier League club. Even a, even a relegation could affect the women's club. So we've got to have a drive of sustainability in order to, to be able to better justify, I think, further increases in spend. Going back to the point about how you manage the situations with, and I've heard this from lots of people within the game, that agents are asking, certain agents, not all of them, are asking for so much money that simply isn't there and that the expectations are unrealistic financially. Is it a case of getting together with the other general managers or managing directors or CEOs, but your equivalents across the game and having that conversation and saying, look, we're not going to pay above this 
are you type thing? Or are those conversations ones that you have anyway? I think that's unrealistic. I think we need to look across right now the the world game because this league has been so successful. The WSL has been so successful because we've been able to attract top talent. And the reason we've been able to attract top talent is because the salaries are there and it's further attracting top talent, which then increases the viewership numbers. And then, of course, you've got the the virtuous circle of, you know, reinvesting, receiving money and then being able to improve the product. So that's really important because we don't want to go back a level. I don't know what the answer is at the moment, but we need to work with the governing bodies to look at this and to see the answer really is to be to try and improve the revenues. That's what we've got to try and do. And hopefully with the broadcast deal as we have it this year, we should go from strength to strength, growing the product so that the individual clubs can grow their own commercial portfolios, if you like, so that there are more significant deals coming into the clubs. That's what we've got to look at. And then, you know, you're you're looking to grow the revenues from a product that is is worthy of those of those revenues and that's where i'd like to see the game going and i think we've got an amazing platform to do that from now with a new broadcast deal could you explain what exactly the broadcast deal means in practical terms for clubs across the board in the WSL it was well documented that there's a significant increase in terms of monies being paid to clubs but we need to just be realistic in terms of there's a significant level of investment from the clubs and whilst the money is obviously very welcomed it's obviously nowhere near the level of investment that the clubs are having to put in to grow the game so we're still at a stage where you're very very grateful for the opportunity to grow the awareness of the sport whilst the product is there now to you know reap the financial benefits it's amazing that the game is on terrestrial tv with bbc and then of course with sky sports it's the next cycle that we hope that we'll see you know a real improvement in terms of where the game could go to because remember this is the very first broadcast deal that we've had that sees revenues coming back to the clubs it's not right for me to get into the figures and so on here but I think what we're doing is growing the product in order to justify an increased deal, an obviously better deal. Everyone wants to, you know, the first contract anyone signs is always going to be the worst contract you hope that the next one will go on again. But Sky and BBC are doing such a good job in terms of the raising the awareness and, sh- and sharing the sport with the world, with all the individual global deals as well. Then hopefully the product will only go in one direction and that then is to better the deals next cycle. And it really needs to increase attendances, of course, as well, because previously when players weren't professional, the product wasn't as attractive and people didn't know about it because there wasn't the media attention and it was all a vicious cycle. Whereas now you could argue the product is there and the media is there. The TV camera lenses are on these top players week after week and people are getting to know them. And yet we don't have high attendances because there hasn't always been a culture of attending women's football matches. Our dads never took us, for example, or mums, and, and it's a new culture. Are clubs doing enough to make it easy for fans to know when matches are on and to buy tickets and to get through the gates, to buy merchandise and all the rest of it, to increase those revenues? I guess as, as clubs, you can never do enough to really drive this forward. But I think given that we're in the early stages of this new broadcast cycle, the product awareness will 
reach people to grow those attendances ultimately that's what we want but I do think that the pandemic hasn't helped because we were on a crest of a wave pre-pandemic with crowds and attendances and when you look at we had 35,000 at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium when we played Tottenham this year we played Chelsea which is a key rival uh, game at the Emirates we got 9,000 so I do think we've dropped off slightly because of the pandemic anyway I think a good measure actually will be when we play Chelsea in the FA Cup final at Wembley because what better venue, the occasion and the accessibility of tickets. So I think that will be a good measure. But I have seen crowds rising in the last month compared to where we were in September. So I'm just hoping that the nation takes the game where it was and gets it back up there, to be honest, pre-pandemic. But of course, we often as well see an increase in crowds subject to the national team success. You know, there's no denying that. And we didn't do perhaps what we wanted to do in the Olympics. But of course, we've got a home Euros coming up. So that should be fantastic in terms of reaching that objective to really try and get the, the crowds back to the games. And turned over high up the pitch again. Could be trouble here. Oh, yes. Kim Little at it again. She is red hot right now. Well, West Ham paid the price for losing possession in a dangerous area. There is the half century for Kim Little then. 50 goals in 98 WSL appearances. That is a remarkable return. How do you see the WSL as things stand in comparison to other leagues around Europe? We've seen what Barcelona have done to both Chelsea and Arsenal in Europe, and they are clearly an exceptional side. Um, their league makeup is rather different to that in England, as is the French League, for example. And then the American League has been boom and bust for years. They've always really struggled to try and find the right formula to make it self-sustaining, which is, of course, the holy grail for the women's game. So how do you think the WSL compares? I think at the moment it's in a good place. The European leagues, in a way, are similar because at the moment I think it is fair to say that there are a handful of clubs that realistically have got a chance of winning the WSL. That's not to say that all 12 clubs don't aspire to. Of course they do. But when you look at the score lines in terms of goal differences, I think the WSL was very competitive compared to the similar score lines on the continent. So that obviously tells a story in that it is more competitive. Whether that is something that sustains itself given the certain increase in investment of top clubs, then that's to be seen. Because the German model, you could say the German league is fairly competitive. They've got good setup, albeit that Wolfsburg or Bayern obviously last season won the league. There's generally two teams that win it. It is competitive, but I think still with a caveat of we, you know, yet to see other teams invest significantly to make sure that they've got a genuine chance of winning the league as well. But I, I'd still never, ever think that when I go into a game that that's it, we're going to win. Do you know what? <laughs> to be really honest, when I was a player with Arsenal, I did have a thought of 
we should win. We're going to win today, you know, because of the difference in terms of there were no other spend. And again, that's not a level of arrogance. That is just because we were the only side investing in women in the women's game back then. Very, very different now. At every level, the investment is increasing and improving, but just at different percentages. I do think that the WSL is a highly competitive league with fantastic facilities at the clubs or the majority of clubs in terms of training facilities. You've got the likes of Leicester, you know, with their amazing facility now. Brighton, obviously, with their bespoke women's facility as well. And we will be addressing ours here, similarly at Man City, at at Chelsea. So I think it's how you work to produce the players behind the scenes is where you see the fruits of your labour on a match day. And if that continues, then the WSL will step ahead of the rest and remain, in my opinion, the most competitive league in the world. When you look back now to that day in 1995, when you walked into Arsenal Ladies Football Club as it was then, and now when you walk into Arsenal Women's Football Club now in 2021, how would you describe your emotions? Pride, I think, of the people that we've got at the club. Yeah, just proud of their passion and humbled at the same time in that our players and staff care so much about this football club. And I think that's where, I guess, the competitive advantage can come in because we've got players that have been with us a long time and they deeply care about winning, but with Arsenal. They want to win with Arsenal. Of course, every player wants to win, but some players don't care where they win. But we've got players that really care to win with Arsenal. That's something that gives me kind of shivers. It's, you know, they want to drive this football club forwards, as well as disbelief for seeing the game where it's at right now, how quickly it's evolved in the last couple of years or even again, last six months. While saying that, at the same time, I have an overriding feeling every day of, Okay, what's today going to throw up? Because nothing now ever surprises me. It will be, okay, I might deal with this, that, the other, and then at the final hour, something will happen and you think, that doesn't surprise me. It's a bit of a thrown in at the last minute, but it's a fantastic place to work. And I'm probably biased, as you know, but it's a joy, but it's such hard work. As in, you've got to work hard. I don't mean it's, you know, it's a chore. I mean, you've got to work hard. You just couldn't do it if you weren't, able to to do things 24-7. It's a 24-7 job. As everybody in this role, or indeed involved um, in elite sport or various other areas of life, knows you cannot switch off 24-7. And that's where you're responsible for managing your energy levels so that you are fresh or as fresh as you can be to deal with everyday challenges, because there are everyday challenges. So it's, yeah, and, you know, and you're sometimes responsible for certain things that need dealing with on that day. There might be a fire that needs to be put out, a metaphorical fire that needs to be put out as well. And you have to be fresh to be able to deal with it, which when it's a 24-7 job isn't, isn't always easy. So what I've tried to do, certainly in the last two years, is be better at distancing myself so that I can reflect to then see what perhaps we should do next time better than what we did last time. And that's something that hasn't come naturally to me because I'm just used to firefighting on a daily basis. 
But the way we've been able to grow the staff has allowed that vision to take place a little better in terms of reflecting on things and looking at how can we improve. If I was to wave a magic wand and offer you the granting of three wishes, because I know how frustrating your job can be in fighting fires, putting them out and uh, dealing with people who may prove a little frustrating. What would those three wishes be, whether it's to do with something that you'd like to see happen from the national governing body or whether it's something you'd like other clubs to do or something you'd like your club to do, or it could be global football. What would you like? Three wishes. I would, first of all, like it to become the norm for us to have minimum 10,000 people at every game. That would be number one. Number two, that we have a culture and environment at Arsenal where we feel that we've got the perfect culture for having a world-leading football club with a real underlining presence of high performance where we've got the facilities that we need in terms of training day-to-day. And again, we're addressing that, but you can always want more. So that would be the second one. The third one that we've got that much interest from commercial partners for the women's team specifically that we're having to turn companies away. Not so unrealistic, is it? No, I try to be, I try to keep it realistic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Claire Wheatley, it's been fascinating to hear your insights and uh, good luck with the next 26 years at Arsenal Women. Thanks very much, Jackie. thanks to Claire for sparing the time to talk to us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed that and you'd like to hear more insight from those operating at senior levels of football, then do subscribe to the In the Boardroom podcast feed. Plus, if your podcast app gives you the option and if you're feeling warm-spirited, then you are more than welcome to leave us a nice review. In the Boardroom from The Athletic is presented by me, Jackie Oatley, and it's produced by Steve Hankey. Lion Trust are giving you the chance to win a £1,000 shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. All you need to do is visit liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic and answer the question. This competition is only open to UK residents and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. That's liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic. <laughs>